Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I met Edward Van Halen in June or July of 77. They were still about eight months away from releasing their first record, which would come out in February 78. They had signed the deal on Warner, uh, but the record hadn't come out yet. So I meet him on this nondescript night at the Whiskey Go-Go, you know, famous club out here in Hollywood. And uh, we just start, I'm introduced to him and we start talking. It's just a remarkable conversation. I sort of describe it as one of those conversations that you started somewhere a long time ago and you're just kind of resuming the, the conversation. And for the next 26 years, I was sort of friends with him. Have you ever seen any other musician that you've interviewed, that you've been around, have that kind of effect on people? That's an excellent question. I'm glad you asked me that. I don't mean to get overly dramatic, but it was like idolatry. I mean, it, it really was. They loved him and they revered him and they loved his music, but I think they loved the person as well. They didn't, didn't know him. They'd never met him, but they felt like they knew him. And that came from his onstage persona. That's why I think Edward went beyond being just a guitar player to a, a legend, was that connection with him personally. This is Janet Fitch. This is Jeff Jackson. This is Dana Spiota. This is Chris L. Terry. This is Michael Amos Cody. This is Lance Olson. This is Jessamine Violet. This is Zachary Lazar, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. is lit season three hey there lit listeners welcome to another episode of rock is lit the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels and also a finalist in the 2023 popcon indie podcast contest in the category of art and culture. Rockus Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Weird Al Yankovic, and you're listening to the Pantheon Network. Rockus Lit is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Special shout out to this semester's Rock is Lit interns, production intern Cater Jones, and social media intern Jenna Rudolph. 
Another special shout out to Tim Randall for research assistance on episode 45 on Stephen Rosen. Find out more about me and Rock is Lit on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. Drop me a line at ChristyAlexanderHallberg at gmail.com to let me know what rock novels you'd like to hear featured on the show. And for goodness sakes, subscribe, comment, leave a five-star rating and all that good stuff on your podcast platform of choice. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for your support. Thanks for joining me for part two of my in-depth interview with music journalist Steve Rosen on his decades-long friendship with Eddie Van Halen, which culminated in Steve's 2022 book, Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, My 26-Year Journey with Edward Van Halen. The third edition of the book is coming soon. You can pre-order your copy now at ToneChaserBook.com. For more information on Steve Rosen and the Van Halen Fiction Challenge I offered all you lit listeners who, like me, are jonesing to get your hands on some novels or short stories or graphic novels featuring the band, check out Episode 45, Part 1, or email me at christyalexanderhallberg at gmail.com. I can't wait to see what you come up with. And if I wind up devoting an episode to Van Halen Fiction that you suggested, I'll give you a shout-out in the episode. Back to Steve Rosen. In part one of episode 45, Steve and I talked about the genesis of his friendship with Eddie Van Halen, Eddie's background as a kid immigrating from the Netherlands to America, and his devotion to and respect for his father and brother, the idolatry Eddie's fans felt for him, and the seeds that eventually sprouted into Steve's book, Tone Chaser. Get ready now to learn more about Steve's complicated relationship with Eddie, including the dark turn it took in the early 2000s and how Eddie's 2020 death still haunts Steve. You'll also hear juicy stories about Steve's journalistic career beyond his work with Van Halen, such as his tumultuous experience interviewing John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin in 1977. We begin part two with Steve's account of introducing Eddie Van Halen to Richie Blackmore of Deep Purple and Rainbow backstage at Long Beach Arena in 1979. Unbeknownst to Steve at the time, Eddie had already briefly met Richie in 1976 at the Rainbow Bar and Grill in L.A., and that meeting had not exactly gone swimmingly. Take it away, Steve. I knew Ed was a huge Blackmore fan. Purple was on Warner Brothers, and I was on Warner Brothers press list, so I was getting tickets, and you know, so I had arranged tickets and passes, backstage passes, uh, and an invitation to this post-concert party. So I'm thinking, how cool would this be to take Edward to the concert down to Long Beach, which is a you know venue about 30 miles from where we live, and Ed lived just sort of around the corner in Coldwater Canyon. And for me to go take him to see Blackmore with Rainbow. And then I thought, wouldn't it be incredible if I could actually introduce 
Edward Kavikby. This would be historic. I'm thinking, honestly, I was thinking a little bit like a journalist. I mean, I wasn't thinking about myself, but I'm thinking, this is the real moment. I mean, this is like, Richard Blackmore is arguably the greatest proponent of the, of the Stratocaster, the classic rock guy, and here's this young gun, and they come together, and I, I saw it all. You know, yeah. I saw my name, Edson Stone, as the guy who introduced them, you know. <laughs> so we go, and we see the show, and this is one of those moments, in fact, there's some pictures in the book, where we're sitting there waiting for the lights to go down, and the second we sit down, I sensed it immediately. I don't know if Edward did. I don't think he did. Probably because people were so used to it by then. It's like this line of people just waiting to say hello and shake his hand, you know. I put on the invisibility cloak, you know. So the lights go down. John Cougar had already gone on. We, we didn't see him. And the, the second act was Randy Hampton, who was a, he did like a Hendrix mm-hmm. thing. But he was in blackface and he had the wig. I mean, he was Lordy. really good. Was yeah. that? Lordy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Randy, he hit it down. So the lights go down. We expect Randy to come out. And it's Rainbow. I'm going, what? So we see Rainbow, and then they go off, and Randy Hansen comes on. I am befuddled. So we go backstage. Edward had met Randy a couple of weeks previously at the whiskey. Randy, you played the whiskey. So we're saying hello and this and that. And I go, Randy, what was that about? Whiskey was afraid to go on after me. I had played some gigs with him up in Oakland the previous week, and Richie was bummed out. I never asked Richie Blackmore about that. You know, could that happen? Is it more likely Richie was in some kind of a foul mood and he wasn't going to go on as a headliner? Which I totally didn't understand. I've yeah. seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows. I've never seen that happen. So he's saying, yeah, Richie was in a bad mood, blah, blah, blah. So as we're driving over to the Queen Berry, which is where the party was, which was literally like five minutes away from the Long Beach Arena, we're going, and it just dawned on me, I thought, Richie was so pissed off, he wouldn't even go into the headliner slot, and we're going to walk in there, and I'm going to introduce him. My God, talk about the lamb to the slaughter. <laughs> and I write about this, and it's true. Mm-hmm. We get to the bouncer with the clipboard, you know, and, and, and my first thought is, Please, God, do not let my name be on there. And then I'm thinking that would be a horrible death than going in there and being insulted by him. Because then Ed's going to think Rose and Ken even get it together to get a pass ticket. You know, what a loser he is. So it was a no. My name is on the list. And we walk up. As soon as I walk in, man, I am looking around. And and I'm thinking, well, Fritchie was that pissed off. He's probably back at the hotel. I'm looking and I go, oh, my God, there he is. (laughs) So I'm trying to steer Edward away. Ed, let's walk this way, you know. So we go over to the bar, you know, and, and we're drinking. And I'm thinking, maybe, maybe Edward won't see him. Maybe Richie won't see us, you know. And he's basically in our line of vision. I'm going, he sees us. He's going to see us. So I say to Edward, hey, man, you want to go meet Richie? And he goes, yeah. So we walk over. And I had just interviewed Richie literally. Maybe weeks earlier or months earlier, I had done a cover with him for Guitar Player Magazine. And Richie had been pretty cool. I had met Richie previously a couple of yes. times, and he was horrible. He was horrible. But on that day, he was cool. And I think it was because I was there. I was the writer doing a cover story for him in Guitar Player Magazine. Right. Guitar Player Magazine back in the 70s was like the Bible. 
I mean, no, no disrespect to anybody, but if you were a guitar player, you wanted to be in Guitar Player Magazine. So I'm thinking, oh, well, maybe Richie's going to be cool, you know, maybe he's going to remember me and, and it's all going to be good, you know. So we walk over, you know, and, and I see Richie kind of looking at me and he's kind of, you know, he's not giving anything away. I walk over and I go, hi, Richie, Steve Rosen. He goes, hi, you know, and he looks at Edward, you know, and he gives him, gives him one of those looks, you know, and he goes, I know you. Don't you play guitar? Oh, Jesus. Oh, my <laughs> Thank God. God. Please, God, help me be invisible now. So Eddie had this hand out to shake his hand, and he didn't he did. shake his hand. Oh, He did. And as you so accurately pointed out, Christy, I did not know that about a, I guess it was about a year earlier, Edward had run in to Richie and John Bonham, who was also notoriously, incredibly rude and disrespectful. He can yeah. be a, a nasty fellow. They're together, and, and Edward sees them. I mean, Ed was a huge Zeppelin fan, so he says, my God, John Bonham and Richie Blackmore, he goes over say hello. They treated him horrifically. Had I known that, I never would have made the offer to introduce him. But again, if you think about it from the other side, from Edward's side, even after being insulted and humiliated like that by Richie Blackmore, he was willing to go over there again and, and take a second step. I mean, it really was a testament to how much he really loved Richie's playing and, yeah. and, you know, really had mad respect for him. And Richie was nasty. A little while after that, Jazz Obrick, Jazz was a staff writer for Guitar Player, interviews Edward. And Edward talked about that moment. And he goes, yeah, I was going to go down there to really lay Richie out, you know, and I decided not to do that. I got down there and Richie said, yeah, I like your playing or, or whatever Jazz had written. I can't remember. That is not what happened. Yeah. It's yeah. not what happened, you know. I knew he was hurt. But, you know, he, he tried to hold it inside, and I thought, my God, he's going to be pissed at me. He's going to be angry, you know. We just never addressed the subject again. One footnote, Edward never remembered when I would introduce him to people. In that story about just he doesn't mention my name. Not that he should, but. Right. So he never remembered me introducing him to Rickney. I introduced him to Billy Gibbons, and I introduced him to Les Paul, and he never remembered any of those moments. Ouch. It's just the strangest thing. Yeah. And not consciously trying to snub me or I wasn't important. I think his head was too full of guitar riffs and, you know, what, what's the next chord thing going to be? Just a strange thing. This is Steve Rosen. You're listening to Rock is Lit with Christy Halberg. Rock on, Christy. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out. 
because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. You mentioned the drug thing earlier, and I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I do want to ask, were you aware? I mean, there's a difference between recreationally using drugs and and having a big problem. Were you aware that it was getting out of hand with him? There was one moment I write about, after there are two moments, when he, he was choking, he was gagging, he didn't look good. His nose was running, you know, and he even remarked on it. Yeah, I'm trying to talk to you, man. I'm here coughing and choking. And he had done a lot of food. I had done it with him, but there's no way I could have done those amounts. I just wasn't capable of doing that, you know. If I was, would I have done that? I don't know. But did I ever notice he was getting out of control? I never saw him to the point where it would affect his playing if anything, he just became a, li- a little more animated. It's not like most guys would be bouncing off the walls. He was never like that. When I think about it, and I don't even know if I wrote about it sort of this specifically, but he basically was doing Krell, his word, every, every time I, I was with him. Wow. Um, along with smoking. He smoked more than any person I've ever met in my life. And he drank. He drank a lot. Yeah. I describe him as, as high functioning. I just think he, he knew how to act when he was high, but it ultimately took its toll. And it's funny because I, I knew early on, well, I didn't know what I thought was going to be the most hurtful thing to him was his cigarette smoking. Yeah. And it was, yeah. you know, I mean, as stupid as it sounds, I mean, coke addicts, I hate to go here. They, they OD once in a while, but typically, they go to rehab and they get over it, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah, it affects organs, but it's not. If you stop, everything kind of regenerates. With cigarettes, you smoke; it's there. You can stop smoking forever, uh, and that's what happened. You know, he got con- cancer of the lungs and right to his tongue. And but yeah, I mean, and and I write about this as well. You know, it's easy for me to talk about it. Well, it's not easy to talk about, but I can talk about it after the fact. You know, should I have said something to to him? You know. Do you say something to a friend? I mean, I don't know, man. Isn't that up to a family member? Or What just, good would that have done? I mean, unless yeah. he wants to quit, yet nobody's going to make him quit. So, uh, I mean, he passed away. I mean, he was, he was a young guy. I mean, oh, yeah. You know, Absolutely. So it was horrible. Well, you know, when he passed away, it was clear that he still had a close relationship 
with Valerie, who by then had been his ex-wife for a long time, and he was married to somebody else. You know, I grew up watching one day at a time, so I got to ask about Valerie. Did you get a sense of, of what their relationship was like before it went south? I do. Uh, and I saw it on several occasions when I go up to their house. Valerie bought the house in Coldwater Canyon, mm-hmm. and then Edward moved in. And what I always found amazing, you know, Edward, up to like the second crew, was still living at home with his parents. Of course, you're the most famous guitar player in the world. You're living at home. Why not? Yeah. I just thought that was so amazing, you know. I saw obviously that European family thing, you know. Anyway, so he moved into her house and I'd go up there pretty, pretty often and he was around and she was amazing. He was charming and she was inviting. He understood my relationship with her husband and knew that I wasn't going to hurt him in any way that I loved him, you know? Yeah. And so she was always, you know, it was always really positive when we were around each other, you know, and he asked me, do I play Scrabble? And that's like, you know, that's the wrong question to ask a writer whose mother was a champion Scrabble player. (laughs) So we played Scrabble and it was amazing. I mean, you know, he was so into it and I just loved that. I mean, you know, playing a game of Scrabble, you know, and maybe I was waiting for Edward to come out or maybe he was in the bathroom or something. But she was so into it. She so wanted to win. And I loved that mm-hmm. because I'm competitive. But it, it was important to her. But yeah, I saw the relationship. They, they adored each other. This honey, I love you and I miss you. No. And, you know, I'm there for you. Two very high profile people, two successful people. She's gone for weeks at a time shooting movies. He's gone for months and months at a time going on the road. She's in the studio keeping crazy hours. You know, he's doing her rehearsals, you know. So I'm sure it was hard, you know, for both of them. You know, at one point, and I write about it, he did a movie with Richard Dean Anderson, a uh-huh. MacGyver. He was a good-looking guy and blonde guy. And Ed said something about, you know, how, yeah, you know, he's on the penalty with Richard Dean Anderson. And I thought it was just an amazing thing to say, Edward Van Halen, the best looking guy in the freaking world, you know, married to this beautiful woman. And he's jealous. It, to me, it was amazing. Mm. You know, how human is this guy? Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I think it was an amazing relationship until it wasn't. Right. And then those other things creep in. And again, I never spoke to Edward about it. He, he made some remarks at the end of the book. He cheated on him. He cheated on her. There were money issues. I mean, the truth always lies somewhere in between, right? But yeah, it, it's sad that that fell apart. Right. Um, well, they it, both it, seem it, like absolutely adoring, devoted, doting parents to Wolfgang. They absolutely were. I, I think that was Ed, Edward's second life mm-hmm. and Valerie, too. Big part of his sobriety. Yeah, for him, Wolf was everything, you know. And it's interesting because earlier in the book, I don't know how many years earlier it would have been before Wolf was born. Ten years. It was a while. Somehow we're talking about family and I said, uh, do you want to have kids or something? And he goes, yeah. You know, I said, would you want them to be, be in music? You know, he goes, yeah, if they want to. I, I just thought that was a pretty cool thing for him to say that. Yeah. But Valerie you did know. not. She did not want no. Wolfgang to be in music. No. I, I was aghast when he told me that. I could not believe it. And again, I don't want to rewrite history. I don't want to interpret things incorrectly. But by then, 
you must have seen what uh-huh. my son, a rock and roll guitar player, can be like, and my son is not going to do that. You know? Yeah, that doesn't. It, it absolutely does make sense to me. That wasn't surprising when I read that. I thought, well, yeah, I mean, she has watched her husband go on tour for months at a time. She's seen the drug use. She's seen the groupies. She's seen all of this stuff. Of course, she would be wary about her son going into that that profession. What's your opinion of Wolfgang as a musician? I think he's got the Van Halen blood flowing through him. <laughs> I thought you might say that. Man, he is a talented kid. Is it because he's hanging around father who has a guitar in his hand 24 hours a day? Yeah. Or is it, he have that special XY chromosome that gets passed on? I, I mean, you see it a lot, right? You see, it, you know, the offspring of actors become actors, the offspring of musicians become musicians. He is a very talented kid. He writes, he sings, he plays guitar. You know, Edward, the first time Edward mentioned him, Wolf was playing drums. Oh, it's actually one of our last conversations. He said, yeah, but I thought Wolf to play drums in five minutes. Coming from anybody else saying that, I, I go, yeah, right. You taught your kid to play drums in five minutes. Edward Van Halen telling me this about his son. I believe it. He describes how he, you know, teaches him to get the independence with his hand and his foot, you know. And he plays in this little clip and, and Wolf was 11 years old. Wow. At the time. And he goes, yeah, listen to this. And, and he's putting like a, cassette player is something that he recorded on up to the phone, so I'm listening. It's the phone conversation, and, and I hear it, and it sounds like John Bonham. Can oh, you my not gosh. Believe? Yeah. One that's an 11-year-old kid, and two that literally he's been playing, I don't know, for a couple of days, a few weeks, you know. Yeah. But very talented. Guitar player, bass player, incredibly talented. Here's a clip from a November 1994 interview with Eddie Van Halen, in which Eddie talks about a then three-and-a-half-year-old Wolfgang. Note that this interview was not conducted by Steve Rosen, but it does crystallize what Steve was talking about in terms of Eddie's admiration for his son's musical ability. Link to the interview is in the show notes. Has having a kid affected your outlook at all towards, uh, towards life or anything like that? Has it kind of changed your no, attitude? Just, I've been blessed with that. Boy, yeah. He's such a great kid. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a beautiful thing. A gift from God. Definitely a gift from God. But, uh... No, it hasn't changed my the way I write or anything. No, right. You know? He loves music. Hey, one thing I'm I'm really happy about. He's got rhythm. Yeah, he's yeah, got good rhythm. Great. You know, we, we were in there playing the other day, and he's uh-huh. just popping along, and that drumstick in his hand. Right. You know, tapping along. He's got great rhythm. But yeah, he loves playing it on a piano. You know, he doesn't really know what he's doing. Yeah, but uh, you know, give him some time. Let him be whatever he wants to be. True. But I mean, I don't see. How he won't somehow be into music, being exposed to it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know I asked him the other day. Actually, the other day, he was up above the garage where I have a lot of my guitars. And uh, we were, Valerie and I were looking for something. And he goes, he looked at all the guitars. He went, you know something? When I get big, I'm going to play the guitar. Really? <laughs> and the way he said it, it had a conviction to it. Like, that's what he was going to do. Uh-huh. I thought it was so cool. I'm so nervous Don't know my place A life without you I'm not ready to move on No matter what the 
Talk about the disintegration of the relationship with Eddie because it did take a turn. So again, without trying to give the book away, yes, I recognized a shift in Edward Edward's personality early nineties. I don't know why it happened. I don't know what caused it. I always thought it was my fault. What what did I do? What mm. what did I say to him? What what didn't I say to him? You know. And I tried to come to the realization that it was nothing that I did, which is a hard thing to do because I tend to blame myself for everything, good, bad, and indifferent. I'm just one of those people who takes responsibility for everything. I don't know if by then the fractures that had happened within the band were coming back to haunt him somehow. Were there problems with the label, the marriage? Yeah. You know, maybe some of the health issues were manifesting then. Though he wasn't diagnosed until later, but maybe some of that was happening then. Somebody said that the manager that they had brought in was telling him, you can't hang around with that guy anymore. You can't, you can't talk to him like that. Uh-huh. I never spoke to that manager. I don't know that, which is why I would never write that in the book. But, but several people said that to me, you know? So he was changing. Anybody can stop being friends with anybody. You don't have to give reasons. It's hurtful if you were good friends with somebody if it yeah. just kind of ends. But the fact that it slowly eroded, things got black. It wasn't just a, a separation. It was a really hurtful separation, at least, at least for me. And that's what was hard for me to understand right. or write about or figure out. And yeah, maybe that's what I tried to unravel for 580 pages. And I don't know. Well, everybody yeah. listening, Steve's being very careful not to say too much, but you have to read the book because he does go into detail about that slow disintegration and then the last phone call. You need to read it to see what happened. Thank you. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody said that, well, certainly the book is about you and your friendship with Edward Van Halen, but in some respects, maybe it's and I'd like to think it is. I mean, I don't know. I never intended that, but maybe it's about relationships or, yeah. you know, that thing between two people, you know, or, you know, maybe some famous person and a less famous person. I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think that people might walk away with something like that, but I call it a modern fable. Yeah. You know, is, is how I kind of typify it. You know, this, you know, the dragon slayer, this guy over here and the peasant guy over here, you know, and the dragon slayer looks out for the, with the little peasant guy and you know not all fables end happily unfortunately you know sometimes the dragon wins but you said that his death left a lot of questions unanswered for you what kind of questions do you still have other than just why he backed away was there anything else that his death kind of left unfinished for you well why is obviously yeah the huge one i guess i would have asked edward was the fact that I was a music journalist, did that mean anything to you? Mm. And there was no wrong answers. If he says no, nah, you know, uh, or, or yes, you know, because we never talked about it. I never knew if what I did meant anything to him. And again, yeah. he wasn't to be rude, but I would love to have known that. I would have liked to have known, Edward, did you ever read 
anything I ever wrote about you. And I don't think you ever read one word. Really? You know, a cover would come out. I did three cover stories with him in Guitar World, but I also wrote a ton of major features. And I'd get the issue, and I'd want to say, Ed, you know, this is what we did with that guy. I could not bring myself to do it. Because I, I, I just don't think he would have been interested. I don't think, in general, Edward was a big reader. I could okay. be wrong. He, maybe he read the newspaper every day and followed sports, which I never think he did, even though we went to a football game. And I found out he was a Raiders fan. But I don't think she read a lot. So, yeah, Edward, did you read any of my stuff? And why didn't you read any of my stuff? Edward, why didn't you remember me introducing you to those guitar players? How could you not remember those things? Yeah, there were some unanswered questions. Some painful things. Painful, yeah, most of them were painful. Let's shift gears and talk about Led Zeppelin. You know I'm a big Led Zeppelin fan. You gave me a great segue earlier when you said Eddie didn't read your articles. John Paul Jones read. Oh my God! (laughs) He read what you wrote about that little comment about Jimmy Page. He read that. So tell me about going on tour for eleven days in 1977 with Led Zeppelin. You know, it's funny. I never. I mean, I never. I never connected the two. Edward never read anything. And the one thing I gave to John Paul Jones, he did read. Oh, yeah. So be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so I was, I was a Monsters Zeppelin fan. We're all Monsters Zeppelin fans. I had tried literally, I think I'd made phone calls to the Swan Song office. I know it was months. It could have been a year, maybe more. You know, I, I approached the guitar player, hey, you know, I'm trying to get a Jimmy Page interview. You get a Jimmy Page interview, we'll put it on the cup. So I tried and I kept calling. And, and the people, they were very nice. Janine Safer, I remember her clearly. She was always supportive. Listen, man, they're, you know, they're not going to have any journalists on the road. They'll be going on the road in 77, but, you know, they hate the press. I, I get it, you know. Yeah. Kept calling. And then I think she called back and said, hey, you know, yeah, they said, yes, you can go on the road with them. Like, oh, my God. So I sit there for days and days and I put together the most comprehensive Jimmy Page interview that has ever been written. I mean, every song and every guitar lick and I mean, I had it down. You know, I went back to the Yardbirds, of course, and pre-Yardbirds, you know, because Jimmy was a session player mm-hmm. and played on a bunch of these amazing sessions. I mean, I was truly aware at the time that I was going to do this. I think this was... April or May, when I started going to the road, I knew at that time that this was going to be a, a, a unique opportunity for somebody to really plumb the, the mind of Jimmy Page, guitar player. I, I said, yeah. I don't think it's going to be done this thoroughly again. And, and really, it wasn't until much, much later. So I was also going to inter- interview John Paul Jones. So I spent days putting his stuff together. And John Paul Jones, like Jimmy, was a session player. And it, you know, yep. worked with Donovan, some of my favorite songs. And he arranged those songs, you know, the, 
1950. Oh, yeah. Um, sometimes Superman. I mean, my God, they were so clever. What an amazing musician. I wanted to talk to him about all that. So I fly out to Chicago, this thing at a very nice hotel. I can't remember the Drake. Very nice hotel. The way that, that Zeppelin had set up their tour was they were based in Chicago. They had their own private plane. And what they would do is they would schedule gigs that were just basically a 45-minute plane right away. You know, St. Louis and my geography's bad. What's close to that? Indianapolis or, you know, maybe yeah. 45 minutes away. I mean, you know, there were tons of places you could go to. So they, they would get in their limo from the hotel in Chicago, take the limo to their private plane on the private tarmac at, at Chicago O'Hare, get in their private plane, fly to the private tarmac in whatever city they were in, take the limo to the gig and do the gig and reverse the process. It, it was genius. And that was Peter Grant, you know, the manager. Oh, yeah. Later, bands would do that all the time. But then, my God, unbelievable. It cost a hell of a lot of money. But, you know, they didn't have to go through airports or, or do any of that craziness. So I'm there. And I think it's about the second day. They said, yeah, John Paul Jones will talk to you. And they said to me, do not leave your hotel room because these guys are going to want to talk. And if you're not there, well, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. So literally... I was a captive of, I would stay in my hotel room 24 hours a day. Oh, good grief. Because I knew, right? I knew the second I left, they were, you know, the phone was going to ring, hey, they'll talk to you. So luckily I was there. I go to John Paul Jones and we talked for at least, I think it was at least two hours. You know, I remember filling up tape, you know, and another tape. And he was amazing. He loved Zeppelin and it it showed the way he talked about it. you know, his bass playing and his gear and his keyboard playing and all the session work and working with Bonham. And uh, he was just a joy. So I'm waiting to do the interview with uh, Jimmy Page. Literally, I think it was another three days before I was able to talk to him. So I go to Page's room and I walk in and there's a monstrous hole in the wall. There's the plaster on, on the rug and the phone is like torn out of the wall. And the phone is, is on the rug, you know. I mean, that's the first thing I see when I walk in. I mean, he answered the door. And I, you know, I'm, I'm sure I said hello. And I walk in and I'm looking at it and going, I didn't even, I didn't even want to. He didn't want to ask. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If he wants to tell me about it, you know. And he goes, well, you know, fucking telephone, you know. You leave it on the cook, you know. It, it rings. If you take it off, it makes a buzzing sound. So one thing to do, you know. And he had just thrown the phone at the at the wall, and it couldn't have happened too much earlier because I mean it was still you could tell that it just happened. So we sit down, and on on the edge of the bed, which is really uncomfortable, instead of sitting like at a table with a back on it, you know, I had the world's steepest cassette player and the world's steepest microphone. I mean, it was literally like a four dollar cassette player and a three dollar microphone. And why I did that, don't ask me. I was the least professional person you could imagine. <laughs> we're talking, and and it's going pretty well, you know? He would get up once in a while, and he'd go in the bathroom, and I don't know what he was doing. He was drinking out of a bottle of Jack in front of me, and, and he drank pretty copiously. He was pretty wasted, but he was fairly coherent until he wasn't. And then it got to a point where he'd go, yeah, I played the left Paul. I go... Uh, excuse me, I mean, what, wasn't that the telecaster? He goes, oh, yeah. So now I'm telling him what guitars he played. And I kind of, you know, fell apart at that point. But I got a good 45 minutes. 
were on a plane coming back from a gig and I was allowed to, to interview Jimmy for a second time. You know, Janine said, Hey, Jimmy, we'll talk to you again. The way that the, the, the private plane uh, was outfitted, it didn't have like regular rows of seats. It had like these little sitting areas, like two overstuffed like sofas, like with facing each other. There was a little table. I mean, it was like you were in your dining room. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. There was a bar. They had their own bedrooms in the back. I mean, your legs up when why not? Right. So I'm talking to him, you know, and he doesn't talk very loud. He, and then there's all the white noise from the airplane. So I've got the microphone right up in his face, you know, which he doesn't seem to care. I don't even know if he knows it's there. And we're talking. And we're talking for about 10, 15 minutes. And somebody kind of taps me on the shoulder, you know. And I turn around. And it's John Paul's room, you know. And he's kind of standing there. And I'm kind of looking at him and thinking, oh, yeah, you know, he wants to say hi. We got along. And he, he sees I'm interviewing Jimmy. And he's saying, like, yes, welcome aboard, you know, man. We're glad you're here. You're cool, you know. So I turn around. I continue talking, you know. There's a very vicious pat on the shoulder. And I turn around. And he's not laughing. He's not smiling. And I stand up. And I'm kind of looking at him. And he's there with his bouncer. And this bouncer is like six nine, three hundred pounds. And what the hell is going on? And he's looking at me and says, Rosen, you fucking asshole, I'm gonna fucking kill you. Then I think, oh, he's really goofy and he's giving me the Zeppelin treatment for a for a journalist, you know, and I'm kinda laughing, you know. And he goes, I am gonna fucking kill you. Wow. And I realize he's not joking. He goes, you fucking asshole, what the fuck did you write? Oh, my God. I haven't written anything. What is he? (gasps) (laughs) I look in his hand. I have to backtrack, Christy. I'm thinking, okay, I'm I'm walking into the lion's den with these guys. How can I make friends with these guys? Guitar player had put together a little compilation of of interviews called Guitarist Volume 1. On the cover was my Jeff Beck story. I'm thinking, hey, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page was in a band with Beck for a short time. They're buddies. John Paul Jones did sessions with Jeff Beck. I'm going to bring them each a copy. Peace offering. They're going to see, think I'm a cool, I'm professional. I know Jeff Beck. I had given John Paul Jones a copy when we did the interview. Mm-hmm. He, hadn't read the, he hadn't read it yet. Thank God. So he's standing there. He's got it rolled up in his hand. It's like a truncheon. I think, what the? And then I remember the Jeff Beck story was the first story I ever wrote for guitar player. So I was trying to be a little hyperbolic. I was trying to be, I was trying to exaggerate to try to make a name for myself. I really right. was. I've right. written something like, of the three great English guitarists, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, and Jimmy Page, Jimmy Page did nothing more than rip off Jeff Beck's first record, Eric Clapton turning into a hillbilly. Because I hated all of Clapton's solo stuff after Cream. Yeah, and Jeff Beck is the only guy, right? Is is the only guy who continues to do stuff. And at that second, I realized: Did I write that? Did he really read that? And it, it dawned on me in, in in a flash: Oh my fucking god! And my brother had always told me because my brother read that. He goes, "You better be careful what you write. One of these days, a band is going to read what you wrote." And I go, "Mick, my brother, Mick, come on." A band's never going to read what I write. What are you, silly? 
<laughs> he had read it and he was incensed because during the entire interview with him, I'm trying to tell him how much it meant for me to be there. And it did. Yeah. I mean, I'm there with John Paul Jones. My God, was Zeppelin. I love the band. They were amazing, you know. Right. And then he reached this and it goes through his head. This guy's a fucking liar with all the rest of the fucking press. Fuck him. I'm going to kick the shit out of him. So he's standing there and I'm thinking, God, is he going to take a swing at me or something? That didn't worry me. Because not that I'm a fighter, but John Paul's Jones, I think I could have taken. Yeah. It's the bail security guy. <laughs> not so much. I'm like tossed out of this side door, you know? Oh. So, so he did the thing that was most hurtful to me. He said, fuck you. You're not doing any more fucking interviews. Give me the tapes. Always the same. Playing your game. Drive me insane. Trouble's gonna come to you. One of these days that it won't be I gave him the tape. I did a his interview. I gave him the tape of Jimmy. I unloaded the one from the cassette player, gave it to him. We fly back. He sits down. I sit down. I mean, I can't look at anybody. I'm thinking, oh, my God. I probably could have stayed indefinitely yeah. to do more interviews. At that point, I thought, let me just get out of here without, you know, somebody set my room on fire. These guys aren't going to, Jimmy Page is not going to talk to me in any kind of a positive way anymore. Janine Stafer saw the whole thing. She walked over on the plane. She goes, when you land, go to John Paul Jones' bedroom, his room, and uh, apologize. I go, I can't. I'm too embarrassed. I, so I, I wouldn't even know what to say to him. She goes, go and do it. So we land. I pack. I literally called the air, airport airlines. I had a, I got a flight for 7 o'clock the next morning. By now, it's about 4 in the morning. Oh, jeez. So, time we get back, you know. So I go and I knock on his door, you know, very timidly. And he opens the door and he's, he's fuming. And I go, I don't even know what to say to you. I am so apologetic. Anything I wrote in that story was not true. I wrote it because it was the first thing I'd ever written for guitar player. It was an exaggeration. I have total respect for you. I am so sorry. Expecting him to say, eh, you know, he goes, I still think you're a fucking asshole, but you have a job to do. Here are your cassettes. Oh. Who would do that? I wouldn't have done that. Mm. I would have burned him. I go back. I write the story, and the interview with him really was spectacular. The interview with Jimmy was really good. It was about a third of what I wanted it to be. Had none of that happened, I could have stayed on the road. It would have been an amazing, amazing interview. It was really good. The issue comes out, and I look at it. You know, John Paul Jones is like the major feature. He's on the cover. And it was really good. I mean, it was really good. Flash forward a couple of months. I'm at the Starwood with my brother upstairs in what they call a VIP room. It's just a, a room upstairs where if you have a, a, a press credential, you can get up there, you know, to pay for drinks, but, you know, you can be away from the crowd. Yeah. So I'm there with my brother and, 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 you know, we're drinking. And I had told him this story. And he goes, 
oh, John Paul Jones is behind you. And I'm thinking, yeah, make that's pretty funny. He goes, no, John Paul Jones is over there. And I, yeah, he goes, John Paul Jones is standing up and he's walking over here. I go, yeah, right. <laughs> so I'm about to take a drink and I, there's a tap on my shoulder. And I turn around and John Paul Jones. I, I don't even know what to do. So I stand up ready for another, you know, assault, you know. He kind of shakes my hand and he goes, I'm so sorry. I, I did that and I said those things. I, he kind of hugged me. He goes, I read the story. It, it was amazing. That's I mean, terrific. I'm telling you, not many people would have done that. And especially not, I mean, look, man, he's in the biggest band in the fucking world. He, mm-hmm. he didn't have to do that. I was, man. I was a, I was a weasel. But uh, yeah, that was amazing. And yeah, it gave me one of the greatest stories I ever had, you know. Yep. Um, life, uh, life works out once in a while. So See, yeah. some fables do turn out well. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the fact that you were on the 77 tour, you, you probably had an idea of, I wonder if this is going to go well, because that tour is infamously shrouded in darkness. And it kind of was from the start because the trouble really began before 77. It it really began with with Robert Plant's terrible car crash in Greece. And he's still recovering from that when they begin the 77 American tour. But it was one freaking thing after another that happened on that tour. And of course, it got cut short because his little boy died. Horrible. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You didn't see a lot of interaction between those mm. guys when I think about it. Look, not that I was around all of them all the time, but I mean, on the plane, I mean, they, they, they would be in their separate rooms or sitting apart from each other. But weren't you, Steve, weren't you given a set of rules to go by when you first arrived? The limo brings you to the hotel, I guess it was. When you first arrived, you're given a set of rules. Do you remember what some of them were? The newspaper gave those to me. At first, I thought they were joking. There was a whole page of them. Well, I remember one was never look John Bonham in the eye. Uh, I'd be backstage. And, th- and that's where I kind of see th- them kind of wandering around before a show. John Bonham walking by and man, wow, you did not look at John Bonham. He was, yeah, man, he just had a, I don't know what it was. Yeah. He was an angry young man. So yeah, yeah I. You know, I, I, I would turn my head, God, yeah, basically never addressed any of them, you know. Uh, Talk to Peter Grant or Richard Cole for any reason. Oh, my God, Richard Cole. Well, Peter Grant was just, he was just a big guy. Yeah. You know, he was, he was a scary looking guy. Richard Cole was kind of a splendor guy. Some guy said, and again, I don't know if this is true or not, that he was like, you know, part of the London <laughs> mafia thing. Richard carried a gun. Goodness. Yeah. I'm assuming he had a license, but still, I, don't, I never asked. Richard Cole was just, he was scary. Yeah. He was really scary. Yeah. Yeah. Don't talk to those guys. I, I interviewed Richard years later, and he was like the nicest guy. Keep your cassette player turned off at all times unless conducting exactly. an interview. Never ask questions about anything other than music. Exactly. Oh, and this was number five. <laughs> Most importantly, understand this. The band will read what is written about them. The band does not like the press. This is the one thing that would prove my undoing, you wrote. Wow. Oh, good. I love you doing your homework like that. <laughs> I mean, well, hey, look, I, you know, 
I'm in my element. I love these guys. I, I love the music. I love the writing that you did. And, and so this is the perfect podcast for me to combine the two. Well, thank you so much. But yeah, man, you know, Zeppelin, I mean, they were, I judged every other guitar player I ever met by Jimmy Page, you know. What did Eddie think of Jimmy? Edward loved him. You know, some people will tell you, and I never talked to Edward about this, that Ed got some of his tapping from Jimmy's uh, Heartbreaker solo. Uh, huh. Jimmy did a couple tap notes, just, just a couple notes. People said that Ed saw uh, the, uh, the tour, uh, a tour with Jimmy doing that. And that's where Ed sort of said the seed was planted. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, Edward was a, a big Zeppelin fan. I don't know if they ever covered any Zepp songs back in the club days. I never heard any on bootlegs. I mean, they must have. And I'm sure Edward copied those solos. The only time we really talked at length about Zeppelin was, well, actually a couple of times. Edward was up for best guitar player in guitar players pool. And he was up against Page and some other heady guys. And he goes, ah, oh, well, you know, Paige is going to win no matter, you know, I, th I think it was on the time of the Coda record. Okay. Um, so, you know, even if he's not playing great, Jimmy's going to win, you know, yeah. and, and won. I know that Edward loved the records. Yeah. And then later on, you see photos of Jimmy and Edward. Did you see Jimmy Page at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I did not see that. Oh, yeah. He inducted Link Ray and he came Come out on. and played the Rumble. And it's the first time he's played live in like nearly a decade. So it was a thrill. It was just a thrill. And he just looked ebullient. He, he looked so happy yeah. to be there and the crowd was eating it up. So it was, it was an emotional moment for me to see that. <laughs> it really was. Oh, that's great. I mean, the guy must have a, a ton of music in him. Like, yeah. You know? Well, he's the, the keeper of the Led Zeppelin flame and, and maybe that's his, his focus right now. Well, we began with Eddie Van Halen, so let's end there. What do you think his legacy is, and how do you see your book, Tone Chaser, contributing to that legacy? I'd like to think that by diving as deeply as I did into Edward Van Halen and hunting what he told me on the Twilight tape and trying to humanize him, that, that you walk away hate to use the title of the book, Understanding Edward just a little bit more than you did before. That legacy, God, it just goes so far beyond him being a musician. Obviously, that was at the heart of it. But again, man, it, it was just that person and that charisma. Man, that just doesn't come around very often. I'd like to think that if Edward had still been here, and Ed, Ed passed about six weeks after I began the book, and that was a hurdle in and of itself. Oh, my God, what do I do now? Yeah. Now what are people going to think? Oh, my God, how can you write a book? The guy, you know, and by then I'd written, I don't know, a few chapters. 
I thought the book was leading me somewhere and it felt really good. And I, I, I continued with the book and I'm very happy I did. I guess what I would hope is that if Edward was still here and I could reach out to him, he might say, no, I haven't read your book. I'm not going to read your book, but I know the kind of book you would write. And I know it would be an honest book. And so I give you my okay. That's what I would hope. In terms of his legacy, God, you know, I, I just hope it adds a little bit to it. There are other books written about him. I hope that I covered ground that those books didn't. You can listen to his music now and, and maybe understand a little bit more of who he was and where he was coming from when he was writing that music and playing it. Yeah, that you understand that this book is really, if you look at it a certain way, it's a 580 page homage to this guy that I knew for 26 years, you know? Yeah. I loved him. I don't know of any way to end this better than with that line. And it comes across in the book as well. So kudos to you. And I wish you all the luck in the world with this third edition. May there be a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and we'll just keep going. Thank you so much, Steve Rosen, for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. Those were wonderful questions. You got me thinking. And thank you so much. It was really a joy. Thank you, Chris. Well, yeah, this was a treat for me. Thanks for listening to part two of my conversation with Steve Rosen. If you missed part one, I hope you'll check that out or give it another listen. If you enjoyed this or any of the other episodes, consider giving Rock is Lit a five-star rating and drop a comment at your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.